Food and Faith podcast would like to thank our sponsor, Memphis Theological Seminary. Memphis Theological Seminary is currently accepting applications to join the next cohort of the Doctor of Ministry in Land, Food, and Faith Formation. This dynamic and innovative low-residency program is open to students who are passionate about the intersections of ministry with agricultural practices, food justice, care for the land, and the role of faith communities in both rural and urban settings. Students in this program explore the theological and ethical dimensions of land and its use, the role of food in our lives, and the ways faith communities both shape and are shaped by their relationship with land and food. This program will provide theological resources and practical models for the practice of ministry in faith communities, which seek to relate more intentionally to the care of land, food, and all living creatures. The first one-week residency for the new cohort takes place in June 2022, and applications are currently being accepted until April 30th. For more information and to apply, visit memphisseminary.edu. Food and Faith Podcast, conversations from the soil and around the table with your co-hosts, Anna Wolfenden, Derek Weston, and Sam Chamberlain. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Food and Faith Podcast. This is Derek. Today's episode is another entry in our Just Kitchen series for our upcoming book project. You'll get to hear a wonderful conversation that Anna and I had with Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter. Carter's teaching, research, and activist interests are in Black, womanist, and environmental ethics with a particular focus on race, food, and non-human animals. He is the co-creator of Racial Resilience, an anti-racism and anti-bias program that utilizes the combined insights of contemplative practices and critical race theories. His academic publications include The Spirit of Soul Food and Blood in the Soil, The Racial, Racist, and Religious Dimensions of Environmentalism in the Bloomsbury Handbook on Religion and Nature. The passion that informs all of his work evolves out of his family's struggle to loosen the chains of systematic racism. Similar to Bell Hooks, he believes that education is the practice of freedom. He believes that at its broadest level, learning should be transformational. It should transform how the student views herself, her neighbor, and her worldview. Currently, he's an assistant professor of theology at the University of San Diego, a faith and food fellow at Farm Forward, and lead pastor of The Loft in Westwood, California. Just a quick reminder that you can support the work of the Food and Faith Podcast by going to www.patreon.com slash foodandfaithpodcast, and any amount helps. Okay, let's listen to our conversation with Reverend Dr. Christopher Carter. All right. We are here today with Dr. Christopher Carter. Dr. Carter, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here. So we like to start our conversations off with this question of what is your geography? What are the places, the people, the culture, the food, music, whatever, that have shaped you to be the person that you are? <laughs> That's such a good question. Because uh, there's so many different ways I can answer it. But um, I think there's a few things that come to mind immediately. First is I am a uh, Midwestern raised by parents from the South. And, you know, like many folks, um, as Isabel Wilkerson describes in her book, the one the other sons, uh, you know, migrated North for, well, I, my grandfather migrated North because of death threats from the clan but that's hmm. perhaps uh, that's slightly that's slightly in the book i i, I gently talk about that story in the book but i, I don't I'm, I'm gentle with it because you know it's just traumatic for him to even talk about but anyway like that um lineage from mississippi and louisiana is a part of how i understand uh like hospitality and the ways in which you should engage your elders. I'm smiling because I just had this conversation with a woman in my church around language and titles and mm -hmm. how many, you know, growing up in the black church, especially with folks from the South and the way you talk to people by their last name and you say, yes, sir. And yes, ma'am. And that's, I still do this. Like, that's mm -hmm. just how I'm wired. And uh, so that's a big part of who I am. I think that kind of Midwestern work ethic, a kind of Southern hospitality and Southern culture, definitely Southern uh, food ways. And then at the same time, I would say with respect to geography, also being in California for so long, I've been on here since 2007, you know, I was, um, I, I did another um, interview with uh, Mark Bittman a little bit ago and, and he and I have been 
you know, talking about things since then. And one thing that I've realized is so much of my food now includes Mexican foods, like foods I didn't grow up eating, but just food, like I'm literally 10 minutes from Mexico, like where I'm sitting right now, <laughs> like, I'm t- like I, and so that has totally become a huge part of, of what I eat. And, and it's so easy to make vegan Mexican food for me. So that's the one other thing too. Um, and it's really, really good. So I think in terms of geographies, you know, now I feel very much like a person that um, needs to be by the water, a person who loves the West Coast. And the last thing I'll say, the last thing I'll say, because uh, I can talk too too long about this, um, is, is music. And I, I don't think um, I was aware of how much, how important music was for me. I come from a family of people who either played music or played sports. And I did the sports thing, although I have a deep appreciation and affinity for music. Um, so I grew up listening to just all the gamut of like, you know, um, you know what we might call like country music, um, you know, gospel music, um, like hip hop, obviously, and probably the band that has influenced me so much uh, is Rage Against the Machine, which is the mm. craziest thing, except for like in hindsight, when I listen to the music now as in a, you know, a wise old, you know, 40 something man, <laughs> I, I see now the through line between their deeply political mm-hmm. thinking that resonated with me in a, in a teenage self, basically between ages like 12, you know, to my early 20s that I didn't, they gave me a language to speak to something I knew to be true that I didn't quite know that's what it was. And even now, when I listen to it, I'm like, wow, I really was thinking these things. I just didn't know how to express them. And they were able to in a particular kind of way. So so I think that's a big part of my geography. I know it's a big answer, but um, mm. I've, been, I've moved all over the place. So it, it's funny in in recent interviews with uh, the members of Rage Against the Machine, uh, people complaining in recent years about them being so political and their response being, what machine did you think we were raging against? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Like that was on purpose. Yes. <laughs> like that, that literally is the point. That is the point of our music. So no, it's, um, it's, it's beautiful. And, you know, I mean, I think I appreciate being able to have such a wide variety of musical interests and, um, and, and taste that I can be in multiple spaces and still feel like I'm, you know, listening to something that feels like me. Well, we would love to, um, into particular about the geography question and ask about kitchens both the kitchens that you grew up being shaped by and your kitchen today yeah tell us how how have those various kitchens shaped you yeah that's and actually i think this this fits into much of the geography question in part because um you know when i think about um the kitchen as a space you know i'm reminded of both kind of the outdoorsy nature of kitchens from my childhood meaning like the actual cooking and food outside like even though grilling meat growing up was particularly something that men do we grilled a lot of vegetables we ate a lot of vegetables my grandparents had a garden but like it was huge right you know basically is what like people farm. call it yeah it was a little farm but they called it a garden my grandpa at his, at his core self wanted to be a farmer that's what he wanted to do he just wasn't able to do it um and so uh so yeah so i think so there's outdoor ways in which I think about that. And so that made me think immediately of the geography, like growing up in the Midwest and my grandparents lived in like basically rural West Michigan, a town through Michigan, through three rivers, Michigan, which is I think now maybe 5,000 people. Like it's pretty, pretty small. And, and in the inside of their house, um, you know, my grandmother was like, the person it was her kitchen like it was, it was just it was her kitchen so i'm like I, I have very few memories of my grandpa i mean he like would walk through he'd go through the kitchen and get outdoors <laughs> but he wasn't like he wasn't doing anything in the kitchen uh in particular um and so like she i think you know i was one of the regrets i have i guess is what is bringing this to mind is well my grandmother she had a uh stroke when I was young and so um, she never fully recovered ability to speak although she still and she never fully recovered ability to use her right hand Um, but she still did cook and she did all those things and um, one of the regrets I have growing up because we spent every summer there um, when I was a kid was not learning how to cook from her uh, even though I think she would have been open to it because she wasn't like um, you know 
gender roles in that kind of sense with respect to doing chore things that were perceived as chores more or less it wouldn't have bothered her like i know i can look at a picture of her right now i have a picture of her in, in my office that i got i mean you can't see it in here it's zoom is all weird but um I wish I had because what I find myself doing now when I think about my contemporary kitchen is going through a process. Now I feel like I've done a pretty good job of just recreating things that I ate that taste like what she made. You know, mm-hmm. it's really about just remembering a taste and a feeling, quite honestly, you know, because I can't quite remember everything. Um, but does this feel like what it was? Did it feel that it felt like when she made it right? Does it hit, hit me in that same way and from a perspective of, of soul and, and relationality? Um, and so my contemporary kitchen, you know, is a space that is invitational. It's a space that it allows me to tell stories to my son about my grandmother and about my grandfather, about um, cooking in general, um, what I'm preparing and where it comes from. My son is three years old and we spend, um, like he, I do all the cooking in the, in the house and he is in the kitchen every time stand. He has a little, like, I don't even know what you want to call it. Some kind of contraption that we bought that he can stand on. And I'll be honest, it's probably slightly dangerous because he'll be in there when I'm on, I like cooking on the stove top, but I can't like he functionally like he will not leave me alone so i'm like well i guess you're gonna be helping so you know like he's in there um seasoning things he loves to do that which is so funny because occasionally he will put something he will put something in some seasoning something inside something i don't want him to and it still turns out pretty good or even better than i thought it was just like i don't even know you know uh how that happened yeah it's just like you know it's, it's 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 wild but i think because he knows that this space is not off limits, that it's a part of how, what it is we do. And I allot the time and I have, I have the privilege of having the time, right? I don't have to come home and rush to get something prepared in a half hour. I usually have about an hour and a half between the time I pick them up, the time it's time to eat. And we usually spend a lot of that time in the kitchen. So um, it's a big part of my identity. It's a big part of my relationship with my son. That is uh, something I'm really proud of. It's really beautiful. It's something we've been talking about is, um, intergenerational cooking and the stories that can be shared and the way that we pass down values. Um, and, and, and I love the way that you described with your grandmother's food, like trying to find, to find that feeling. So I think there is something that, I don't know, that just hit somewhere in me when you said that, Oh yeah, it's not just about the recipe. It's, it's the, something bigger that happens. And when we are, when food is prepared in a particular way with particular intention, and it's, it's the art of the cooking, not the science, right? It's the, it's the, it's the spiritual process that's connected with the cooking. <laughs> it is very much spirit. As a, the, the, this is a spiritual practice. Like for me, yes. you know, c- cooking is a, it is a contemplative practice, a spiritual practice. It's a way for us to maintain a sense of connectedness with not only the food we eat and the earth that it comes from, but with our ancestors, um, our families that are alive with us and those who we still carry, as, as I just said, but also it allows us, it's that affective, right? You said, I mentioned that, 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 that part that allows us to feel alive um is is i think demonstrated in 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 how we cook um and i think this is the what i'm trying to do with my son is to move cooking away from being seen as a chore right because i think that's very much wrapped up in gender patriarchal you know you know basically post-world war ii moving you know women to the factories and all other kinds of stuff right instead of seeing as a chore but seeing it as something that really is 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 a gift like at the time for us to share a little bit who and I, I've been really influenced by um, both specifically. I would say I've been influenced by the um, Jewish kashrut, um, like their traditions of Jewish cooking and Jewish preparation, and the ways in which there's so many of their rituals are um, shaped uh, through and stories are told uh, through food that really has influenced the way I'm thinking about um, the kitchen with respect to my son and what I'm trying to do. <laughs> Now, so I'm just thinking like, um, I'm not an anthropologist. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a theologian and a, and a pastor and a curious, curious person, but I'm thinking like, if we were to be in your kitchen, just as an observer, how would we know that this was a spiritual practice for you and your son, rather than just getting dinner on the table? Like, what are the, what are the, the marker points? And we talk about intention, but I'm curious, like, how would we know that? And I think what I'm even more importantly getting to is if somebody is, is listening to this or is hearing this story and says, 
I want to move from it being a chore to being a spiritual practice. How does, how does that shift made or how have you experienced that shift? That's such a great question. And to me, it's, I'm going to give you kind of two answers. Um, the first is that there are times when I have to get food prepared because we need to eat and leave. That is not as spiritual as I would prefer it to be or want it to be, right? So as a, you know, I'm very blessed to have a spouse who's a veterinary oncologist who does amazing work. And that's the kind of job I could never desire to have. She works a lot. You know, she works a, a lot. Like on four days a week, she usually works roughly with like 60 to 65 hours in those four days. Um, and so sometimes I just, you know, because she's not going to be there, I need to just get stuff done. And so I want to preface it by saying this is not the majority. Well, it is the majority of time I think about it from, or it feels spiritual, but there are the times when it isn't. And because I come from a poor family whose mother didn't have that, I can understand why it may be difficult for some, but for those of us who have been, are fortunate enough to be in communities where we feel as though we are supported, right? Where we are in a community of care, we have time to slow down because a part of this is being able to slow down, having the time to slow down. I think the way you would know that it's a spiritual practice is the posture through which you participate in. And so I'm thinking about, for me, this is just like the way we talk about prayer, right? And you think about the story of the person in the temple um, saying, oh, you know, God, thank you. Thank me. You know, I'm so grateful to not be like this other person, you know, who's done all these <laughs> sinful things and they're so bad and I'm so good. Thank you for doing this. And the person, you know, the tax collector, whoever it is, I can't quite remember right now, is like, you know, Lord, you know, forgive me a sinner. And that's it. Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. I think it's very much about the posture we take to this space. Right. And so what I had to do, and I'll be honest, it wasn't easy because I'm an older parent. Isaiah was very much a surprise child. Uh, we didn't, we did not believe we could have children. And because my wife and I've been together for maybe 20, 22 years. <laughs> So, so in Isaiah's three, right? That gives you like, you know, so like, it was just like, you know, it was like, whoa, man, this is very much kind of a miracle thing. I had to learn that the kitchen is not about me controlling everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just laughing. My, my daughter's just turned one and I'm like projecting, I'm just having a little moment here, like, like wanting to like, anyway, control. Yeah, keep going, keep going. You're just getting too close to home. Here. Oh, okay. No, uh, you, you know, I mean, it's, it, I know Derek, I know you too. I know you know too, man. Like mm -hmm. it is, it is a letting go of control of recognizing, oh, okay, this is, this is something we're going to do together. It's not always going to be the way I think it might be or how, it, how I think it ought to be, but it is going to be, and it's going to be an experience that is shaping you. And so when I start from that posture, of openness and trying to do things. And I try to put them in position to succeed. I think that's just, honestly the same way I do in the classroom. And so I'm like, okay, if I'm making whatever it is I'm making, what is it can I have him do that he feels like he's participating, that he really is going to enjoy it. And it's not going to distract me from making sure the main priorities of the meal are prepared. Um, and, and so there's a lot of patience, there's a lot of grace, but it's that posture of just openness of, and, and I mean, and storytelling is a big part of that for me. And so whenever I'm cooking with Isaiah, I'm always, you know, talking about what it is we're making, who we're serving, place that it came from. If there's a way to connect it to my family, I tell that story. Um, you know, we just, I just talk to him about it. And so it, it is a, I think sometimes we think about spiritual practices in this kind of, when I'm an abstract, we think it's like somebody going into the desert, right? To be by themselves. And I find that, you know, um, we encounter the divine fundamentally in relationship. Mm -hmm. Like that's where we do that, that that's where it is. And so it's that kind of in divine entanglement we have, you know, um, with God, with others that I think we really come to know and, and feel the presence of the sacred in that space. Mm. I want to shift gears just, just a little bit, because I think this is, this is all connected and talk about your book. Um, I was introduced to your work in 2018 when you were the keynote for the Regenerate Fellowship. And I had I had the great privilege of getting to hear you speak on uh, several occasions during that fellowship. And it was it was phenomenal. So I feel like I've been waiting for this book for a long time. <laughs> Me too. Me too, man. Me too. 
Um, the Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. Um, and this 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 book is it's it was a quick read, but it's it's dense. It's it's got so much going on in it, and I, I'm I'm really grateful. And I know we won't get to touch on everything, but let's let's just start with the title. We had we had Adrian Miller on the show, and so we've we've talked a little bit about soul food on the show before. What is how do you define soul food? What is what is uh, what is soul? F- what does that idea mean to you? What does that term mean to you? And and why is it why is it something that should be brought into the center of these food justice conversations? Yeah, I think that's such a great question, Derek. And and yeah, that was that was a long time ago. It feels like a long time ago in 2018, <laughs> probably because it's pre-pandemic. Yeah. But uh those opportunities were really crucial for me to continue to refine and develop the ideas in the book, like literally in my conversation with Matthew uh, Wesley Williams, who's now the president of um, interdenominational theological seminary over the course of those few days, I changed like a crucial part of the chapter on theological anthropology, like literally just in those conversations I had with him and with all of y'all, like it really helped crystallize some things. So, so I do want to thank not only uh, say thank you for saying that about me, but also to rec- let you know that that conversation was really fruitful for me as well. With respect to the soul food question, um, I think to tie this to cooking, especially because to me, these are interrelated. Soul food at its core is food that is cooked by Black folks with the kind of ancestral and culinary wisdom that has been passed down to us. Um, that is about the preservation and promotion of the black community. It's a way in which we can tell our story um, uh, through our own means and our lens, right? As black people, it allows us, I would say at its core, it's fundamentally anti-racist because it is a claiming of our story, right? Outside of the structures of white supremacy. Um, it resists those structures. It resists, I would say, white supremacy in as much as it centers blackness. <laughs> like, right? And so because of that, that is why there's this kind of blurred line between soul food and Southern food. Often, you know, people are like, oh, what's the difference? Well, the difference is usually, you know, black folks were cooking soul food and the white folks who were cooking, quote unquote, Southern food, more refined, if you will, is the kind of language they would use. And, and that has a problematic history. Um, for me, I think the importance of preserving this term is because I think as black people, we are, it's important for us to remember that we come from not only an agricultural people, but from a people who came, who were enslaved because we were, because of our agricultural acumen, because of our culinary acumen, um, and because of our ability to actually, you know, because of our physical capacities, you know, often it's just limited to just what we could do physically. Um, and so I think soul food allows us to recognize this kind of connection that we have, right, that is on both sides of the Atlantic. And, and that speaks and tells a story that allows us to maintain that connection because it's, it's difficult, right? You know, um, <laughs> one of the more frustrating things, you know, is the hyphen African-American, right? Recognizing that there's very little of me that feels African, even though I know that a big a part of me, that's where my ancestry lies. And so it's hanging on to those kinds of retentions, I think are really crucial for us to cultivate, hopefully a kind of solidarity that I think we need, um, particularly within a food justice movement, um, that food justice can't just be about, especially for black people, it can't just be about access, that needs to be about solidarity, it needs to be about creating a kind of community and a story that allows us to understand what this food is, why it's important, allow to create some cultural cohesion, right? So we continue to understand the importance of being together, of working together, and the collective liberation that we are striving for. I so appreciate that. And and as I've I've started teaching um a little bit on on food and race, the idea that one of the one of the most insidious ideas that I think that we have to combat is the idea uh, that the transatlantic slave trade was a uh, a brokering and unskilled labor mm. that that this idea that there was that there were these these uh, unformed individuals who needed to be brought over and and 
to to learn and as as michael twitty said in in one of his one of the videos i share is like you don't you don't bring unskilled labor to to build your country (laughs) um and, and it's important that we understand that there is a there's a continuity um, and that 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 continuity, and I love what you the way you said it, the agricultural acumen. That like in in some ways that is something that has a continuity here in in the black community, and we're we're seeing it uh, kind of arise in all these places where we're starting to see urban gardens, where you're seeing a lot of black folks who are saying, you know, I'm I'm finding myself in the soil. Um, I'm they're finding, you know, and I it's language that I often use in, in my own gardening of like that I'm finding something of myself that I didn't know that I was missing in the garden. So I, I just appreciate bringing that to the forefront. And there's a lot in the book about the uh, sort of the origins of, of black food and black cooking. And there seems to be, I, I what I, what I sense is that there is a, a recapturing of dignity that's happening. And I think you speak, you speak to this a little bit as well is that there's a recapturing of dignity in talking about this food and talking about it in certain ways. And, and how do you, how do you, how do you feel like this is, these conversations are humanizing for, for the black community as, as we're, we're talking about where these foods came from and, and who's responsible for feeding this country as it was uh, in its genesis. Yeah. And I think recapturing of dignity is an excellent way to um, put it, you know, a particularly positive way to put it as well, because the, when I, when I'm teaching, are working with folks and we're talking about the history and legacy of black and or indigenous people in this country. I asked them like, when, when, you know, when you start learning about black folks, like where do they start, you know? And I would say 80% of my students, um, and if they're in college, I work at the university of San Diego. So if they're in college, that's about 80%, but those who are maybe my age or up. So basically in their forties and up, I would say almost 95% of them answer of something along the lines of slavery or Martin Luther King's civil rights movement. That's basically when they start learning about black people in school, like that they can conceptually remember. So basically what they're learning is that for, with respect to black people's significance and impact from a civilization, human, human perspective, it's either as folks who were destined to servitude or you were, had to be in order to be seen, you had to be super exceptional. Right. You had to be above reproach. You couldn't just be like a regular person. You had to be someone who literally is probably the best this country has ever produced. Right. Mm-hmm. Literally, you know. And so um, what they're what students, black students or white students are gaining or gleaning from this is a kind of way in which they say black humanity is only value in as much as it is superhuman or it is consistent with labor, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's just a theme. Right. And so. Um, that it's terrible in as much as it is traumatic, right? <laughs> like it is traumatic for kids to learn that. Uh, I was fortunate enough to come from a family who actively dismantled that like at home. And so I wasn't like listening to that and necessarily believing it, but it's impossible for it not to have shaped my consciousness in some way. And so what I'm trying to do and what I try to do in this book is recognize that kind of trauma that we have with the land um, as black people. The trauma we have with cooking as black folks is all wrapped up in the idea that our identities don't they really start with slavery. You know, so much of us, you know, they, we, we think that that our resistance to the land is because our connection to the land is told through the lens of our enslavement rather than told through the lens of all the stuff we did for thousands of years before our enslavement. The fact that the, you know, the reasons again, we were enslaved is because we could actually grow the food that could grow, be grown here. You know, mm-hmm. if it was not for black people and indigenous folks, white folks probably would not have survived <laughs> settlers here because they could not grow the kinds of foods that could be grown here. And so when you frame the story that way, it allows, I think, Black folks to see themselves as profoundly important for the contribution and development of this country, of recognizing that the only reason we could grow rice in the Carolinas is because there's a certain kind of rice and a certain kind of method that was exactly the same with some minor modifications to what was happening in the Senegambia region of, of West Africa. And so it 
changes the conversation in ways that I think allows us to assert our own humanness in, in, in ways I think is, is just, just fundamentally crucial. And it gives us the tools I think we need to heal from these wounds. Because that I think is what isn't, what I think we as a quote unquote, might say black community could do better is, is rather than thinking the way to, um, to move away from, to move to urban spaces, move away from the country as a way to, as a way to get away from the kind of um, dehumanization and servitude and, and uh, that we experienced through our enslavement and then post enslavement, you know, Jim and Jane Crow being forced to work in agricultural sector. Uh, I think a more fruitful approach is to actually deal and tend to those sufferings that come up, tend to those parts that really are wounded um, and to give them space to heal. And Derek, what, I, what you're describing to me is that not only of finding yourself, it is a healing. Like it is a healing that takes place. And that's what we have to go through and experience. And that gives us the space to reconnect to something that we know to be true, like something as a part of who we are. And so it's, um, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's so, so, so important um, for us to be able to do, to recognize that our alienation from the land um, is a consequence of our enslavement, not because we obviously, you know, don't necessarily love nature or love outdoors. Um, This is a consequence of white supremacy. You know, I got caught on when you were describing what soul food is on how I feel like so often we describe things in what their end product is. It's that commodification, right? It's the, the, it's, you know, food is fuel. It's, it's consumerism. It's, you know, it's all, all those pieces and what you went straight to. And I, you can give me the exact words again, but it, it went, you went to what you're, pointing to earlier with your son, you went to intention and relationship and process that the very def your very definition of soul food rejected the idea that it is about a product that's commodified that you can, that, that you then consume and brought me as I was listening to, to the healing, to the, the dignity, to the return, to the story, to the, to the re and re-engaging oneself and one's community in, in a, in a larger story. I don't know if I have a question. I'm just kind of sitting over here feeling a little like, like, it's just like, uh, um, I'm feeling it. Well, that what, what is something they, so different. That actually, that's exactly what I was saying. That is different. Like I want to be clear, like my definition of soul food, isn't going to be one that someone like Michael Twitty is going to necessarily agree with. Like he's not going to fundamentally disagree with it. Um, he and I have had a few Twitter exchanges, um, but he's not going to, fully embrace it because my definition of soul food is naturally porous. Um, meaning that the foods that preserve and promote community, the foods that are wrapped up in the stories that we share, the foods that we have access to have historically shifted over time, not only within American history, but just human history. And so I think my anthropological understanding of African botanical legacy is basically has recognized like, Oh, okay. It shifts. That's just the nature of what it is. And so it can't be just about the foods, right? It has to be more than that. And so I really try to embrace that part of it um, and amplify that part, because I think if you cook with a particular kind of intention, that's what can get passed down. And particularly in this era of climate change, Anna, like I don't, you know, I am, I'd be lying if I say I wasn't scared for the, mm-hmm. for my son's future with respect to what he's going to be able to eat. You know, mm-hmm. um, part of the reason I teach parable of the sower in a not in, in, in a class of theology because i'm like this woman was a prophet <laughs> like she was like <laughs> i was like yep. and yes. so i was like we need to read this because i'm like this is a, you know and so so yeah there is some there's there's a way in which i feel like teaching about intention is going to be what's going to hopefully allow my son to survive yeah that's a pretty good reason <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll do it I'll, I'll, I'll do it and i'll do it so. yeah yeah well, it makes me think too about what you're sharing in your kitchen geography question about living in Southern California and incorporating, you know, the local foods of, um, you know, Mexican food and Hispanic and I mean, whatever, I don't know what, what neighborhood you're in, like the particularities of it, but I, I immediately jumped to again, like so often it's like we have soul food fusion or you could be like, we have, you know, well, but what I'm hearing you saying is if you are using the corn tortillas from the tortilleria down the street, or you're, you know, bring home a tamale that was made like that, that 
that could be soul food. It could not be soul food. It's, you know, but me looking at it, isn't going to determine it. It's going to be the relationship, the experience, the intentionality around it. And I mean, I think that's something that as, as a white person thinking about soul food, like that's like a, that's a, that's a shift for me and a, um, it's an invitation to see and hear and experience differently and to be invited into an appreciation of others' stories and also to interrogate and look at my own story and my own relationship with, with my food histories and where have those been oppressive and where have they, could they be life-giving and that it's, um, I don't know. I, I'm not finding them good words, but I just am having this kind of mind blown moment of the difference about the process versus the product like that, that, that changes everything. Yeah. And I think to be, to give a little bit more background to why that makes sense to me, um, I'm very much a virtue ethicist. Um, and, and so for me, process and attention are crucial, you know, um, in this sense, I would say I see as, as a clergy person, I mean, I met this clergy person, I see Jesus is ethic as an ethic of virtue, like personally. And so um, I think that has shaped my, what I do professionally with respect to my use of virtues. In the book, I use uh, Peter Paris's um, book on African and African-American virtues to really frame the ways in which I talk about what does it mean to like eat well, what does it mean to construct a food ethic that I think is consistent with our values as people of color, as people of faith. And, and so for me, intention in the practice is always more important than the than product because the results while important are not crucial. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and that is from Howard Thurman. <laughs> so I don't want to take credit. <laughs> like, you know, uh, you know, the results are important, but they are not crucial. And by that, I mean, like, you know, it, if you continue to do the practice and practice well, the results will improve, but you have to be committed to doing the practice. You have to be committed to doing the work and that commitment to doing the work is where the struggle is. <laughs> like that is the struggle, you know? Um, and, you know, I know that I'm trying to do work now that probably won't bear or the fruit that it will bear. I may not live long enough to see the, the fullness of that fruit. That's just the reality, right. Of, of the situation, but I still do the work. Right. I still do. I still do the work. I still do the practices. I still embody it. Um, and and the end product, uh, my hope is that the end product is always evolving and, and growing and shifting to be more in line with what the ideal might be. Um, but at the same time, that's not always fully in my control, you know, or fully in control because we, you know, we live in a society with so many other ways in which things are impacted. Um, and one thing I want to say real quick before you ask the next question. Cause you actually got me, you gave me a little pause here to think about, you're like, Oh, could this be soul food? Could it not be soul food with respect to the food that I make? That's Mexican. Um, which I would say is predominantly the food I cook now is what I would call either just like soul food, traditional black soul food, or, um, just grilling because I just love to grill like vegetables all the time. So I don't know what that is. That's just me being a vegan who likes to eat vegetables. So I've got a bunch of that. <laughs> uh, and, and Mexican food. I don't know that I would ever call Mexican the food that I know that I have learned to make distinctly from visiting and eating in Mexican restaurants in San Diego, I would not call that soul food, even though I'm making it in part because it's my take on what I believe uh-huh. they, what I'm eating. But yeah. like if, if, if I were, and, 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 and so in that sense, I'm trying to not culturally appropriate. I'm trying to honor, sure. I would say, this is my take on Mexican food. It has the same kind of stories and all the stuff I can share with it, but I want to, you know, honor that own legacy, right. And, and yeah. talk about it from their perspective. And, um, you know, that's got me thinking about how am I going to share these stories of my son as he gets older and talk about, you know, solidarity and cooperation among like Cesar Chavez and other folks, you know, it's an invitation for us to learn more about other cultures. And Absolutely. I still can do the same thing I'm, I'm doing, but it's going right. to you know sh- slightly shift. And I had not thought about that until you asked that question. So, um, thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you for clarifying that because that's that's his, an important piece and that's kind of the difference of a spiritual practice, right? Like there could be like there could be similar modes or methods and to honor the particularities of a particular tradition and the particular way that that tradition's stories embody that practice. Um and that those particularities matter too, right? And to honor those um matters. 
you you mentioned dr carter you mentioned an ethic and you, mm. you talk about uh and you're the specific ethic that you talk about in this book you talk about soulful eating and you talk about that particularly through the lens of black veganism um so can you can you for our listeners define black veganism and and soulful eating and and what what how those two things work together uh in the ethic that you're trying to espouse and and uh pass pass on yeah so for me soulful eating is eating in a way that i believe is consistent with um you know the goals of as i said earlier the preservation and promotion of the black community so how might we eat in ways that are in alignment with our values if that is our value right to actually make sure that um you know we are giving ourselves as black folks the best opportunities to survive and thrive and flourish right that's what i mean by preservation and promotion um i call it soulful eating because it takes broad things into consideration beyond just um what we're merely is on our plate but around the ideological assumptions and theological assumptions that inform what it is we eat so i want to be clear that i did not grow up vegan and the fact that i am vegan still probably freaks out most of my friends that i grew up with uh they've gotten more used to it uh but they definitely were like it wasn't like it wasn't um something that they would expect. It wasn't something I expected, quite honestly. Um, and, you know, um, and I'm not sure if this is, has been your experience in terms of being a clergy person, but like I, um, it was definitely as I became more involved in leadership roles at the church, and then I was a candidate, is what we call it, my Indiana Methodist Church for ordained ministry. And I had an opportunity to do regular preaching and teaching and reading. I became deeply convicted about the ways in which I was talking about liberation and how I could see the connection between the oppression of non-human nature and the oppression of black folks. Like it was super obvious in ways in which that unsettled me and that I weren't articulating him. And I wouldn't fully articulate in my sermons. Right. Like I would be reading out. Mm-hmm. I was like, this, 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 this is, this is, this is convicting <laughs> me. Right. You know? Uh, and so I was like, ah, don't man. tell anyone else. And, and, and so I was like, I gotta, I'm like, this might freak them out. So I'm like, this is just something I might have to wrestle with. And so that continued to stay there. Mm. I went through one, so what I did, this this was in literally 2009, for Lent one year I gave up, I became vegetarian because I was I was dealing with this um, conviction that man I you know if I'm gonna be you know as an ethicist I'm all about applying my ethical norms consistently that's another thing too like so if I'm say I'm for the Saudi of black folks I got means all the stuff I'm doing needs to be in alignment with that and so I was like well let me do this that I know is going to be really hard, but it'll help me understand the discipline I'm trying to um, acquire. And I did, I did it. And it was, it was challenging, but I, I survived, <laughs> you know, I didn't die of protein deficiency and all that other stuff. And afterwards I resumed eating meat, but just so much less, like significantly less. And it was more about telling myself, okay, this is something I can do. And so Long story short, because I could talk about my transition to veganism another time if y'all are interested. But basically what I began to understand for me is that if I were going to take seriously the impact that industrial agriculture, particularly animal agriculture, has on Black bodies, and if I had the capacity and ability to, we, we ought to opt out of it because of the ways in which these facilities employ and exploit people of color disproportionately right and this is continuing to happen right now uh, and um i don't have it in the book because it happened after the book had gotten to farm publication but it got ramped up during covid 19 because so many people got sick and because president trump signed an executive order that gave these corporations the capacities to just basically ignore health protocols and it incentivized people to come to work even though they were sick to make sure he was feeding america which is just a big line of bs um and so people got sick people died lots of people died right yeah. um you know and that's and that's and, and so I, I talk about factory farming in the book in order for us to i think because they're so far away we don't see them it's easier for us to lose sight of their humanity right so if you go back mm-hmm. to you know the what you said um derek in terms of restoring dignity and so how can we take their humanity seriously is what I'm, what I'm suggesting. Like to me, that means we need to opt out of these systems that we know um, are oppressive. Cause I, I think at our best, at, and as I'm clear, and I'll talk about this more in a second at our best, we are opting out of those systems. Um, so that's one thing. 
The other thing is that I argue from a theological perspective, the construction of race in America is, de- is tied to the construction of the animal. These two things are basically the mm. same. Um, and it's really important for us to know that. And I think for people of color, we kind of intuitively, intuitively know it because of the ways in which people have called us animal names, right? Like this has just happened. Like, you know, Derek, I know it's happened to you. I'm like, it's just, it just it happens. It's because racism happens, right? <laughs> like people, you know, and happens. so this is, but, and, and you read like stuff by Frederick Douglass, like you read anything written by any black person in America, they all, this comes up all the time, the ways in which we are rendered as animals, right? And what I come, what I came to realize is that the construction of this other or the construction of the human as such, as is understood here, just the way in which is kind of centered around whiteness, maleness, the heteronormativity, you know, these kinds of um, ableism, I would say ableist, um, it's premised on this alternate other that we describe as the animal, right? And now black folks, you can, we can perform humanness to be treated more like humans, but our humanness is always judged against our ability to be and act and perform whiteness. And anything less than that is always rendered in some sense as an animal. As some, and, and when they say animal, they're not mean, they don't look at me or Derek and say, oh, we think these people aren't in the species Homo sapien. What they're saying is you aren't performing in the way in which we want you to be. You're not behaving in the way we think you ought to be. And this is why they go right to the level of the animal. And so the animal, the idea of the animal, as it's understood now, and the idea of race, these are deeply, these are interconnected. And we can't really tackle one, I would argue, without the other. It's not possible for us to argue for our humanness, which is often what happens. People, by people, like people, people of color say, well, treat me like a human. And what I'm arguing is that the way we've constructed human is deeply flawed and problematic. I don't want to be like being treated like a human in this structure is being treated like a, you know, a hetero patriarchal sexist ableist white man. Well, I don't want to be, I don't want anybody to be treated like that. What we have to do is deconstruct that notion of the human to create something new, um, a new version of what it means to be human that I argue is, is centered on what it means to, um, now this is very Methodist to, you know, uh, practice being like Jesus. We call this Christian perfection. Right. And so, that to me, I think was those two kind of linchpins were fundamentally crucial for me moving towards a kind of veganism, the interconnectedness between the construction of race and the animal and the theological dimensions that that has happened as as, as well that are wrapped up in our understanding of the human as wrapped up in, in, in whiteness. Um, and so I couldn't, I, I tried to make it not vegan. <laughs> <laughs> that's, co- that's comforting actually though I tried, man, because, you know because it, because man i was like this is gonna be you know i mean i'm already dealing with so much what perceived and maybe this is my perception I, I get a lot of i don't know that my work dealing with ecology is accepted to the degree in which I wish it was within the black theological community, mm. because it's not seen as important or relevant because in terms of it doesn't directly tie to like issues of race in their, in many of their minds, which I fundamentally disagree with. And so I'm already dealing with this way in which I'm trying to get my scholarship to be accepted by my own people. And so talking about veganism to me, is just going to make it even seem more abstract. And so I was like, really like, Oh my gosh, there has to be something else. But what I realized by withholding it, you know, I wasn't, um, being myself, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I shifted, like I, sh- I, I shifted the last version of the book. I just pivoted. I was like, I gotta be upfront what I'm doing, but I'm gonna do it through the lens of compassion. And I was like, that's going to be what it is. Cause I, my veganism is not rooted in, you know, I mean, I love animals. Again, I got no, I get nothing against animals, but my veganism is for the people. It really is mm-hmm. for me to be in solidarity with marginalized people of people, particularly people of color. And I talk about what's called a, um, uh, you know, what I define as a kind of, well, I might say strategic veganism or a kind of context specific veganism. Mm. And by that, I mean, not everybody. So it's context specific and person specific, meaning not everybody can be vegan and practice soulful eating because we just don't have the capacities, right? We don't have, they don't have the access. They don't have the economic structure in place. They can't do that. Um, and so I talk about cultivating a consciousness, I kind of, this is where um, in the current article I'm writing for um, the Grio, I talk about using bell hooks as an example of someone who's talking about cultivating a kind of consciousness, a critical consciousness that when we eat, we are aware of what it is, the entanglements of oppression, right? And we're naming it as such. Um, and, and black veganism allows us to make that explicit. 
you know, when people ask me why I'm a vegan, I can really talk about why I'm a vegan in a way that is probably going to surprise them, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and I think that's powerful, right? I think mm-hmm. that it's invitational for us to really address and dismantle some of these systems that we have come to normalize. And so, so, so that's kind of how I got to soul food eating. That's how black veganism got wrapped up in it. And why I think as a term, it really can allow us to address and name, because, you know, I do think the, one of the challenges is, you know, again, being really clear and explicit and naming the ways in which our food system is structurally racist, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's one thing to say it, but I think I try to really demonstrate it in terms of how I eat. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I, I really appreciated this um, this paragraph in the book. You said the aims of soulful eating are the preservation and promotion of community and solidarity and the decentering of whiteness in our diets. While black veganism is an ideal path toward the realization of those aims, soulful eating must not fall into a rigidity that could potentially produce a moral hierarchy among black people. As human beings in the West, we are all mired in an unjust food system, and in some ways we are all complicit in the oppression of others. Moral purity is not an option, nor should it be a realistic goal. Rather, our goal must be to dismantle the logics of coloniality, reduce ecological harm, and promote sustainable ways of being in the world. And I, I appreciate the generosity of that. It's 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 invitational. And again, it kind of takes us back to the kitchen that you described. Like this is a place of community. This is a place of solidarity. This is a place of being together. And that goes beyond the rigidity. That goes beyond sort of a, a legalism that would be inherent in and that that often comes along with vegan jargon that there's Very sort of a, so. there's a legalistic nature to it and that's that's not at all what what you're presenting i mean but i also think that's the way so many people practice christianity right True. in terms of they, they think about yeah. it and, and you see exactly i mean to me it's like you know i Again, I'm very much in line with Howard Thurman, where I say I follow the religion of Jesus. Like, you know, sometimes that looks Christian. Other times it doesn't, because Christianity is not exactly the religion of Jesus as is understood and practiced mm-hmm. in America. Amen. And so I recognize that this is a process, as I said, of we in the Methodist Church, we call it perfection. Theologically, I call it sanctification is the process. It is a, it is a becoming. It is a journey. We are always moving towards. Right. And so if we see it like that, you know, I have not always been vegan. Right. It is something I had to grow into. And 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 I and what I want to do is create the opportunities for people to live into that, right? So, so, so that be able to happen to them. So that means we need to address issues of food insecurity, right? With regards to access. That means we need to talk about compensation. So people people actually making a living wage. So they have time to cook. Right. Mm-hmm. We need to talk about, you know, this to me involves like healthcare with respect to the ways in which we talk about not only maternal mortality, but the maternity and paternity leave, right? After you mm-hmm. have children, how do you create systems in place that we can actually support families? Like all these things tie to food. Like and part of the reason why I love the podcast and part of the reason why I love food is it gives me a lane to have difficult conversations otherwise people don't want to have. Because I can talk mm-hmm. about, like, hey, let's talk about food. And we're going to talk <laughs> about this. And so it's super, it's super helpful. And, um, you know, I try to embody that kind of practice mentality, this journey mentality that, you know, it's not about legalism. It's about, it's a spiritual path. It's a spiritual path. And we're trying to walk down that path in ways that are invitational. And, 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 and hopefully in the process of doing that, I feel very confident people are going to join us. If we're doing it in a way that's authentic and just and true, people will join us on this journey. And, um, you know, that'll be, that, that, that's a beautiful thing. Well, and it gives an invitation too on a very practical level to ask the next question, like, right, of where your vegetables are coming from. Right? So, I mean, all those same ethics, I have to admit, sometimes I encounter, I have encountered vegans who I love, <laughs> where if you do this one thing, it's going to be all better for the environment or, and, and I, I don't think that they, it's, it's, it's not untrue that 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 thing has an impact, but I also could talk about how like monoculture farming has an impact on the environment and how are like the use the way we farm corn in this country. I mean, like, so the invitation in, right. Is that we are all part of these larger oppressive systems and if we are committed to collective liberation, then there are hard choices to make and there are intentional changes and different practices. 
And I would love it if there was like one thing I could do that would make everything better for the environment and for people and for, right? Like, that'd be great. Like I'll do this and then I can check the box and I've been, you know, I'm doing my anti-racism work and I'm doing my environmental justice work and I'm doing my food justice, but that's like not how it works, right? Like we know that's not how it works. And so to think that it's, it's really this invitation to this larger transformation, it's invitational, but also honestly, it's daunting. I mean, it's, um, it's a big ask. And I think it's the ask that we are, we should be asking of ourselves and one another. Yeah. I, I think, um, a couple of things you hit on and, and I want to end with the, um, idea of it being daunting. Let me make a little note here real quick before I forget. Um, I think this notion, Derek, you hit on it to this idea of, of moral purity. I mean, that's, that's what's underneath all this stuff, right? This idea that there's this way to do something that's perfect and that doesn't have any kind of flaws. It doesn't really recognize the um, intersectional dimensions and nature of oppression. You know, my fundamental assumption, you know, is that not only are Derek and I as black men wrapped up in, in, in dealing with the traumas of racism, you, Anna, as a white woman are as well. Like race as a construct has traumatized. We all are dealing with it differently, but we've all been traumatized through this imposition of a structure that has literally disconnected us from the land, right? Like before, you know, I, and I'm not sure your, your ancestry, uh, but can you, well, actually, do you know your, your European ancestry? Um, mostly Scottish, some uh, Scottish and English, a um, little bit of German. Okay. Maybe a little Irish. It's a little iffy, but I, definitely Cal Scottish Celtic. and English. Cal <laughs> yeah. you know. And so like before people would say, and actually this is probably so the case of Britain, because Britain is a little bit different, but that's another podcast in terms of their definite keen on, on maintaining a certain British identity. But folks would be like, you know, they would identify with the land. They're like, I am British. I'm from this I'm from Devon, which is actually where my, my wife's family is from. Or people will be like, I am Spain and I'm from, you know, this particular part of the region. That's how they understood themselves. The creation of race allowed for the displacement of place. Mm -hmm. No longer were you British. No longer were you Scottish. No longer were you Spanish. You were white. Right. Right. It, this, it delinks you from place. And what that does, it creates this ubiquitous, ubiquitous identity that all folks can, quote unquote, have if they're in the leadership group. And then it, it allows black folks to be all categorized in the same kind of space. Right. And so that alone, I think, helps us understand that the, the levels of trauma that we all carry, that we all have this kind of disconnect from the land and the idea that practicing veganism as is going to solve all the kinds of problems, you know, whether we have ecological problems, um, it does help. It does offer some good, but our problems are fundamental. Uh, there are multiple levels, right? And the part reason I keep talking about ideology is because that's, that's part of really religion is, but unless we dismantle the logics that allow the system to be created, we're just going to recreate a similar system. Right. And so the challenge I have and part of the reason I use the term black veganism is because most vegans, Anna, they say the stuff that you just were talking about. They don't talk about it in an intersectional way. And I mean, you know, it's, it's shifting and changing, but they will be dogmatic about this is the thing to do when they're not taking seriously the fact that all the people that are working in the fields, growing their foods are, are, you know, undocumented immigrants who are fear for their lives that don't have access not only to a kind of education for their children or sanitation or healthcare or any of the ways in which all of us believe all human beings should be treated. So to me, if you're going to fight for, you know, that's why I say I'm vegan for the people. Like if you're going to talk about the animals, that's great. The, how about non-human animals, right? You know, expand this <laughs> to understand the broad scope impact of it. Um, and, and it frustrates me that the vegan movement hasn't taken up the idea of regenerative agriculture as a key aspect of what it means to truly be, to, to create societies that are food sovereign societies that are non-oppressive. Like we have to shift away from the ways in which we're growing food. That should be a part of the movement. Even if people do shift the plants that has to be grown in a particular kind of way that doesn't contribute harm. And so I think the, the reason that though, I think that I wanna end on a more positive note, this all can feel daunting. Right. I want to be clear. This all can feel daunting. And I know, you know, I don't really grow that much food. Like I'm not at this point. I don't I just don't have the time. My energy has been spent writing, parenting, cooking, um, you know, taking care of like just that stuff. You know, my wife is, as I said, she's really busy. She's finishing her oncology internship. So for, I haven't had the time really to, to really dedicate to that. And there's one way I can feel guilty about that. But I'm like, I don't 
I feel like I'm being a good parent. I have, I have literally two jobs. I'm like, that's just, it, it's, you know, I just don't have time. But what I do, I'm like, let me do what I do and do it well. And knowing that when I have the opportunity to add and shift or perhaps let, not do other things, I can, I can make, make that choice. And so I see this as a quest. You know, I see this as a journey. And I think all too often we get folk, we get, we think about the end product again, rather than the process. And I'm all about process, man. I'm like, we got to think about the process and just making those little choices every day and knowing that in so doing, we're cultivating the virtues that are going to lead us towards a better place. They're going to allow us to create the momentum so that when the situation and systems are ripe for change, we have the mindset to change them, the desire to change them and the will, right, to um, to do it in such a ways that make it permanent rather than kind of, you know, half-assing it. Excuse my language. <laughs> that's that's a good segue um, to our, our last question and just appreciate how generous you've been with your time what gives you hope not not the kind of hope that uh ignores these big issues and obviously you you've writing about these issues you're you're thinking deeply about these issues you're living in ways to confront the issues um but what so what gives you hope to not ignore those issues but get up every day and say i'm gonna try and live out this ethic and and do the little piece that i can just a few things that come to mind. Um, so I, I see hope as, as what might suspect a virtue. Um, that to me, that's really between the vices of despair, this idea that nothing that, you know, and cynicism, that nothing is going to be good. So whatever. And presumption, which is kind of the, honestly, a lot of the way I was raised was in the black church, which is a kind of more conservative space where everything is going to work out because it's all part of God's plan. That was the kind of language we heard growing up. And I didn't, resonate with that because i experienced too much you know crazy growing up to be like oh this is like this can't be part of like no god this doesn't seem consistent with a god i know in the bible this doesn't seem like why would god's plan be for me to have all this suffering and so what, what, what gives me hope i think is my recognition that hope is about like not only the will to do the work but i think the desire to see the kind of transformation that i think is possible in the human condition I look at my grandfather and I see the fact that I have, you know, a man who's almost 90 years old. And even though his experiences, as I talk about in the book, are just absolutely terrible. He's so he, he wakes up every day with a particular kind of gratefulness that is just astonishing. Like, you know, he's like he's like to woke me up this morning, you know, I'm, you know, and like, that's the kind of language he has. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm glad, you know, he's like, you know, that I'm able to be here and I'm able to talk to you. He has a particular like just positive outlook and not like a, you know, he's a realist. He understands what's happening, but he also understands that so many of his colleagues and friends and family didn't make it. And so he's grateful, like legitimately grateful that he feels like God has blessed him to be here. So that gratefulness, I think is a big part of what gives me hope is that I know that there's a way in which I can continue to do the work that I feel like God's called me to do. And that ultimately, if I'm biting that kind of gratefulness, I believe that I can do it in a way that doesn't wear me down, that doesn't make me feel burnt out, but that also gives me a life and, and is life affirming. And then my son is another reason I think that gives me hope. It's this desire that I have, you know, um, one might say actually hope gives me the will to do the work. <laughs> that's what I might say. <laughs> hope gives me the will to do the work. Like as I'm even articulated, like, yeah, that's kind of what it is. Hope gives me the will to do the work because, you know, I want my son to inherit a, a space and a place that um, not only allows him to be able to flourish as a multiracial child, um, as a big child, my son is, you know, um, going to be a big black man. Um, you know, uh, he has a very tall father and comes from a family of tall folks. And so that is a part of my consciousness, but also ecologically, you know, how he's, what's the planet going to be like when he's alive and around. Um, so I think my hope is, is centered on those kind of spaces and really just my commitment to live the call that God's placed upon me and, and embodying that call, you know, so this is the very heart of it's a theological, I guess, answer, more or less, in that I believe in my prayer life and in my worship life and in the relationship I've cultivated with the divine, that this is something that God's called me to do. And that <laughs> as the church elders would say, like Jeremiah, there is literally a fire on my bones. Like I can't not do this work because there's definitely been times where I have 
would prefer to not do this work, but I can't not do it. And so I'm living it out. And, um, and so my hope is, 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 is I think built on this, I is, is this belief that in so doing, not only am I doing anything that God's called me to do, but I'm doing it in a way that's hopefully that's allowing me to be grateful along the way. And I'm trying to create a space and a place for my son and, and, and for the future of other children too. That's a great question, man. That got me all like, mm. you know, uh, sentimental. So thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> it's our favorite thing to do. Ask that question. <laughs> we always ask our guests that question is our final question. And it's, it, it's a, we could compile those Derek. Let's do that. Let's compile all the hope answers because I always that's an easier book to write. <laughs> that's an easier book to write. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I love your definition. Well, it has been such a joy and, um, you have really given us so much to think about and feel. And, um, I appreciate you going on this journey together over this last hour. Um, if people want to connect with you and your work, where can they find you? I think probably the easiest place to find me is just, so my website is drchristophercarter.com. Um, and so that's where you can find like all the stuff I've either links to the things I've recently published that um, you have to purchase or things I've published that are long enough that I just have PDFs you can just download because I'm all open access, man. I'm trying to get, you know, get knowledge out there. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter um, under Dr. Chris Carter. You can, I'm not really a huge, you know, tweeter or post our Instagram. I do put some things on there. Uh, I'm getting better at it because my publicist is making me uh, do <laughs> oh that a little bit more. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on it, but, but yeah, I would say uh, my website um, is probably the best place to get. I put it, everything ends up on there as soon as something is done. That's great. And just to remind our listeners, your book is the spirit of soul food by Dr. Christopher Carter. So hope you all find that and continue to um, connect and listen to the wisdom that Dr. Carter brings to this conversation. And thank you again for spending time with us today. Thanks for having me. This was amazing. I love, this is one of the few podcasts I actually can talk about religion and food. Usually I got to talk about one or the other. So uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Food and Faith podcast. Our collaborators are Wake Forest School of Divinity, Plain Song Farm, the Garden Church, and the Keep Until. Editing is by Derek Weston and music by Paul Deemer. Follow along and keep up to date with the podcast on Facebook at Food and Faith Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Food and Faith Pod, or on our website at foodandfaithpodcast.org. <laughs>